Welcome to the 64th A.W. Mellon Lectures in the Fine Arts. In this six-part lecture series, entitled Restoration as Event and Idea, Art in Europe, 1814 to 1820, art historian Thomas Crowe will consider the period following the fall of Napoleon. During this time, artists throughout Europe were left uncertain and adrift, with old certainties and boundaries dissolved. How did they then set new courses for themselves? Professor Crowe's lectures answer that question by offering both the wide view of art centres across the continent, Rome, Paris, London, Madrid, Brussels, and a close-up focus on individual actors, Francisco Goya, Jacques-Louis David, Antonio Canova, Sir Thomas Lawrence, Jean-Auguste Dominique Ingres, and Théodore Géricault. Whether directly or indirectly, these artists were linked in a new international network with changed artistic priorities and new creative possibilities emerging from the wreckage of the old. In this fourth lecture, entitled The Religion of Ancient Art from London to Paris to Rome, 1815 to 1819, Canova and Lawrence replenish papal splendor, originally delivered at the National Gallery of Art, on April 12, 2015, Professor Crowe shows how Rome, where both Italian and English artists served as agents in the repatriation of ancient art, became an international nexus in post-Napoleonic European culture. The difficulties of this endeavour, captured by Lawrence in his portrait of the reigning Pope, came to symbolise the larger conflicts underlying dynastic restoration across Europe. Well, here we are. Um, the previous lecture, having began a theme of artists who were set in motion in all senses of the term by the events of 1815, physically traveling in motion in terms of uh, uh, insight, invention in their work, facing some of the toughest problems an artist can confront when the normal circumstances of their practice are disrupted and lost. We witness the final capitulation of Napoleon, the aging David forced to accept his permanent exile in Brussels, there to rebuild his whole artistic life for another decade of prolific and inventive practice as an artist, starting in his late 60s. And also the young Gélico absconding from Paris to Rome later in the same year, 1816, from a mixture of personal compulsion and aesthetic attraction. The theme of displacement continues in today's talk, this time encompassing things as much as people. To begin, I want to quote from a letter written near the beginning of 1815 by a personage we need to know more about. Its author is the Cardinal Ercole Consalvi, Secretary of State to Pope Pius VII and the highest executive authority in the church at that moment. And we saw in lecture one this image on the right, a study for the National Gallery's painting on the left, where, the, where Cardinal Consalvi appears next to, this pope, next to the pope in this study by Angra for his Pius VII in the Sistine Chapel. Perhaps more revealing is this profile drawing by Angra, also from 1809, which was the year the Pope excommunicated Napoleon and then found himself in turn seized and held in French captivity for the next five years. Consalvi followed his kidnapped master to Paris, where both were confined until shortly before the emperor's first abdication. While the pope was returned to Rome in triumph, 
It fell to Consalvi to intrigue on behalf of the interests of the Vatican among the other statesmen of the old order at the Congress of Vienna, whose centenary uh, um, anniversary this year, in fact, represents. There, the cardinal enjoyed a status comparable to the lions of the Restoration, like Metternich, Castlereagh, and Talleyrand. While great issues of territory and dynastic ambitions were pressing, most pressing, questions of art and its disposition were accorded at least a small share of attention as well. In January 1815, we find Consalvi writing to the clerical governor of Rome concerning an issue at an intersection between the fraught international diplomacy of the day and the cardinal's ambitions and plans for cultural renewal in Rome, that is, in the papal capital after the era of French occupation. At issue was one storied piece of ancient sculpture excavated in Rome but not requisitioned by Napoleon Bonaparte, the Barberini Fawn, Saved from expatriation in 1796, it had, in 1815, recently been sold by the Barberini family to the crown prince of Bavaria, the future Ludwig I, whose somewhat younger likeness by Angelica Kaufmann you see on the right-hand uh, side of the screen. Well, Consalvi, after his meeting with the young Ludwig, reports to his correspondent a satisfactory outcome. The prince, Consalvi related, has accepted that he cannot obtain permission to export the fawn, end quote. While diplomatically putting off a definitive refusal, he urges, and I'm quoting again, bearing in mind the advantages of retaining the statue of the fawn, which I believe is one of the very few, if not the only statue of great importance left in Rome. Well, in this instance, as classicists and visitors to Munich will know, the cardinal was ultimately defeated in his effort to refuse Ludwig the 19th century equivalent of an export license the Bavarian prince being the brother of the Austrian empress, whom Consalvi could not afford to alienate at this juncture. But there's no doubt that the cardinal's concern about Rome's once unparalleled stock of trophy antiquities would have been acute. For the moment, the remarkable Musée Royal, which had been just lately the Musée Napoléon, housed the, and organized these transported treasures and remained gloriously intact. Nor had the principle of restoring all of the requisitioned art to its place of origin even come to the fore in negotiations among the Allies. In the first Treaty of Paris after Napoleon's 1814 abdication, French retention of all the artworks taken from Italy, not just statuary, but paintings, medals, gems, manuscripts, that retention had been uncontested, despite our natural assumption that restitution would automatically have been expected and assumed. The Pope and Consalvi were making their pleas, but those pleas met with obdurate reluctance to undermine the precarious legitimacy of Louis XVIII. And the Russian Tsar, Alexander I, was flatly opposed to any such demands. Napoleon's escape from Elba early in 1815 with the horrendous further losses incurred by Allied armies during the Waterloo campaign, made the victors far less accommodating than they had been to French sensibilities before that time. Sensing his opportunity, Cardinal Consalvi renewed his efforts with greater energy within weeks of Wellington's victory at Waterloo. 
A charter from the Roman Senate also dispatched the sculptor Antonio Canova to Paris as Vatican representative with a brief that he make a blanket claim for, this quotes his charter, restitution of all the ancient works of art and paintings taken by the French. The portrait by Thomas Lawrence, about which more will emerge as we proceed, very sympathetically captures Canova's appearance at this time. But Canova found sympathy in short supply on arriving in the French capital at the end of August, 1815. Possession of the Pope's antiquities lay at the symbolic core of Napoleon's unprecedentedly comprehensive presentation of ancient and modern art offered in the Louvre by the Musée Napoléon. The Laocoon group had been preeminent in the collections of the Vatican since its excavation in 1506 in a vineyard near Santa Maria Maggiore. And in this view by Hubert Robert, you see it squarely in the vanishing point of an interior from Napoleon's museum. The sculpture took pride of place among the treasures demanded by the victorious Bonaparte back in 1796 as spoils of war and cornerstone of the museum he imagined even years before its imperial realization. That comprising antiquities of comparable renown, the Belvedere Apollo, as you see, satirized in this anonymous print, and the battered Belvedere torso, both so named for the Vatican courtyard in which they had formerly been installed. Just how central the Musée Napoléon had become in the consolidation and projection of empire can be gauged by Napoleon's commandeering the museum as the setting for his second marriage, a dynastic pairing with the daughter of the Austrian emperor, Marie Louise. This rendering of the 1810 wedding by Georges Rouget feebly attempts to update David's great coronation, but registers a shift in the locus of sacredness away from Notre Dame, where the coronation had taken place, to the space of art because Rouget shows us what was, by use and tradition, an artistic domain. The Salon Carré of the Louvre, the double-height chamber where the great salon exhibitions of contemporary painting took place every two years and had done so since early in the 18th century. The chamber had been temporarily stripped in order to accommodate viewing tribunes over an improvised chapel for the ceremony. The ritual that cemented in the minds and ambitions of the emperor his claims to equality with the ruling dynasties of Europe. Following their proxy uh, marriage in Vienna, the itinerary of the new empress led her to the Louvre, where the wedding party processed the length of the Grande Galerie beneath a wealth of paintings from Italy, Flanders, and France. Here is a portion of the scroll-like commemorative drawing by Benjamin Zix, the gifted uh, Alsatian who was official graphic artist to the court, recreating the passage of the party between the great Raphael canvases. Zix also recorded for this print the couple and entourage as they exited the Grand Galerie on their way to the Salon Carré. So much was the event imbued with the aura of art that by the evidence of this drawing, likewise by Zeke's, the event was not complete until the imperial couple and entourage had viewed the Laocoon by torchlight. Such spectacles available in the Musée Napoléon captivated foreign observers as much as it did the patriotic French. 
And many were entirely prepared to forgive the intimate entwinement between imperial identity and the first encyclopedic museum of art and see it retained. The sacredness conferred on the museum by imperial ceremony, moreover, made its dismantling far more than a matter of title to property. It went to the heart of state authority and legitimacy. This anonymous print, showing the grief of a generic French artist, palette and easel cast down as the Laocoon and Apollo exit the portal of the Louvre, spoke not only for the dispossessed French, but for numerous foreign observers as well. The issue split the famous von Humboldt brothers, whom we introduced in the last lecture. As Prussian delegate, Wilhelm von Humboldt was bound to promote repatriation, while the naturalist and explorer Alexander called the museum the great solace of his long Parisian residence and its dismantling an act of iconoclasm. Much as today, questions were raised as to the public accessibility and conservation of the repatriated objects. The English portrait painter Thomas Lawrence said at the time, quote, every artist must lament the breaking up of a collection in a place so central to Europe where everything was laid open to the public with a degree of liberality unknown elsewhere. Well, Lawrence will emerge as the main protagonist in the latter part of this lecture. His regard for the achievement of Napoleon and his great museum director, Vivant Dunant, if shared by, if shared at all by his British patrons, did not deter them in the least from successfully advancing the cause of repatriation of the Italian works of art. Decisive in this was the resolve of the Duke of Wellington, bitter over the losses sustained in subduing Napoleon for a second time. In September 1815, he wrote to Castlereagh that preserving the, the, his, that is Napoleon's cultural spoils in the Louvre, quote, must necessarily have the effect of keeping up the remembrance of their former conquests and of cherishing the military spirit and vanity of the nation. Consequently, the Vatican works of art had to go home. English support extended up to the level of the Prince Regent, the future George IV, who ultimately agreed to pay for the transport of the works back to Rome and proved, of course, decisive for Canova's mission. The Allies then conceded the requests over the art from the Pope and the Cardinal, along with most of their territorial demands as well. But making good on the agreement, even when the expenses were settled, proved no easy matter. The danger of crowd violence became so acute that Wellington began regular reviews of Allied troops as a conspicuous show of strength. As for Canova, French hostility rendered him perpetually anxious, fear-ridden, and miserable longing for the process to be over. The British artist Richard Reinagle describes the eminent Italian envoy being pelted by bread pellets on a visit to the study room of the French Academy, where his French counterpart, the great sculptor Jean-Antoine Houdon, refused to speak to him. He was one day, related the painter Thomas Phillips, afraid to go to his lodgings there for fear of being murdered, and that one day one of the French artists said in his hearing that he should like to stick a dagger into him. The uh, Scottish miniaturist uh, Andrew Robertson paid a call on the preeminent Napoleonic battle painter Jean-Antoine Gros, familiar to us from earlier talks. Robertson reported afterwards, quote, I have never seen a volcano 
but after this interview, I can conceive an eruption of Vesuvius. <laughs> Lawrence, probably not so different in appearance than this likeness of a decade later, may have regretted on some level the dismantling of the collections in the former Musée Napoléon when both he and Canova were witnessing the event. But that opinion appears to be his only recorded difference with official British policies. Since May of 1814, just after Napoleon's first uh, uh, fall from power, uh, Lawrence's personal and artistic interests lay firmly aligned with official British interests. In that month of May 1814, three continental sovereigns, the Russian and Austrian emperors with the Prussian king, paid a visit to London in their temporary triumph, each attended by his respective field marshal. The lady Anne Barnard, a writer and society figure, wrote to both the Prince Regent and to Lawrence in urgent prose. If the present opportunity is lost, its strength and force from collecting the countenances as they are now will be lost to you forever, she said. Now, whether or not this letter was the actual instigation of the project, Barnard's is the first record of the massive undertaking that would consume the next half decade of Lawrence's career and transform his life, creating a record in individual portraits of every principal figure in the defeat of Napoleon. That was the mission as it was finally formed and agreed. And in accord with the breathless entreaty of Lady Barnard, Lawrence set about fixing the facial likenesses and at least the rudiments of every personage she recommended. Here we see the finished portrait of the Prussian Field Marshal Blücher. And in July, Charles Stewart, who was Castlereagh's brother-in-law and the newly appointed British ambassador to the Austrian court, suggested to Lawrence that he come to Vienna to gather more impressions from the entitled assembled delegates to the Great Congress of Vienna. But Napoleon's return during the 100 days, of course, put that plan and many others on extended hold. Not until September 1818, when further diplomatic gatherings in Aix-la-Chapelle and Vienna presented a renewed opportunity, did Charles Stewart's strategy go into effect. There, Lawrence could pursue, at the Prince Regent's expense, exalted subjects like Tsar Alexander I. James Northcott, writing in wonder at Lawrence's high employment on the continent, declared that, quote, there was nothing like it except in the instances of Rubens and Van Dyke, and that it would raise the credit of English art abroad and make it more respected at home, end quote. By now secure within the circle of the Prince Regent, Lawrence was promised 500 guineas for each full-length canvas and 1,000 pounds in expenses, which were all conspicuously generous subsidies. You remember that David received from Lord Douglas 1,000 guineas for his standing portrait of Napoleon in his study, uh, but that was a single work and now there were going to be dozens subsidized to this degree. With the initial efforts, like the ones you're looking at, Lawrence developed a lasting template for representing these worthies. Full-length representations in full ceremonial regalia, the commanders among them standing calmly against atmospheric but non-specific backdrops of battle. In the portrait of the Tsar, Lawrence removes even more martial attributes from the Russian sovereign's surroundings, 
leaving the enveloping greatcoat and plumed hat to one side so as to better highlight the graceful figure that enhanced Alexander's popular celebrity. In place of the topographical details and the maneuvering troops that have been customary for such portraits in the past, Lawrence develops subtly variable effects of flame and smoke merging into the enveloping atmosphere. Perhaps nowhere is the device more resonant than in his later treatment, painted in Vienna, of the Archduke Charles of Austria, a leading allied field commander and younger brother of the emperor. Well, it might make sense to pause here for a moment and note that the artists who have figured most prominently in these lectures add up to a roll call of the indisputable greats of the period. David, Goya, Canova, Gros, Jericho, Angre. But Lawrence? From shortly after his death in 1830 until quite recently, Lawrence has been saddled with a reputation as a facile virtuoso and superficial flatterer of his largely aristocratic clientele. Even with some recent historical rehabilitation, few would place him in the company that I just enumerated. But our subject in these talks is above all change. And Lawrence's enlargement of his capacities as an artist and of the capacities of portraiture led to a pair of consummate restoration canvases. Indeed, the works of art that may most thoroughly and acutely figure that very subject. Not any we've seen so far. Uh, but before we get to that point, it's worthwhile describing in greater detail Canova's mission. As Canova had been dispatched from Rome to travel across Europe in pursuit of papal property, Lawrence was dispatched in the other direction to work his way from London to Aachen to Vienna and ultimately to Rome in pursuit of a comprehensive set of likenesses on behalf of the Prince Regent. We've seen that he uh, had painted Canova during the sculptor's London visit of 1815 as warm and as honorific a tour as his stay in Paris had been abusive and punishing. And Lawrence could count on the friendship that they had formed in that process. But Canova was far from the only local support that Lawrence possessed when arriving in Rome in May of 1819. As far back as 1805, he had painted this portrait of Elizabeth Foster, then mistress to the fifth Duke of Devonshire, replete with classical allusions. Elizabeth Foster had since become Duchess of Devonshire in her own right, second wife to the late Duke, and the most prominent member of a significantly large expatriate English community in Rome. In the summer of 1819, she sat for Lawrence once again, 15 years after this painting, yielding a remarkable likeness in chalk on paper. And by this date, the second duchess had become the Cardinal Consalvi's closest companion. They saw one another nearly every day and she was the only person permitted to enter his private garden hideaway, his most treasured possession. In that capacity, she knit English upper crust fascination with papal pomp and splendor into the tight social fabric of the Anglo community in Rome. Both her stepson, the sixth Duke, and the French writer Lamartine 
called her the uncrowned queen of Rome, dominant society hostess and patroness of learning. Among other exploits, she organized on a large scale archeological excavations in the Forum, on a small scale luxurious illustrated editions of Horace and Virgil in Italian translation. That the Duchess and Consalvi could be so publicly close, and politically close, owed something to the fact that the Cardinal, though formally celibate, had never in fact been ordained as a priest. He was a statesman through and through, and in these years leaned on a wealthy ally like the Duchess in his massive efforts to refurbish Rome as a destination for travelers and for European residents. We've already had an indirect encounter with these efforts in the last lecture. The Piazza del, uh, del Popolo at the north entrance of the city had been the particular focus of the Cardinal's renovations. From the actual piazza up the hill, the amphitheater and terraces leading to the gardens on the Pincian Hill, making it the popular promenade spot captured in 1817 by Antoine Jean-Baptiste Thomas, another of our main figures from the last lecture. All of this in a newly balanced and embellished oval plan by Giuseppe Valadier. When Thomas and his friend Gélico were recording cattle and horses careening through the Roman streets, it was against this newly refurbished and widely admired urban backdrop that all this was happening. An, an aesthetically compelling interplay engineered by Consalvi between elegant architectural order and exciting noise and animate movement. The Cardinal had also set about reviving customs that had gone into obsolescence during the French occupation or even earlier in order to orchestrate a picturesque folkloric experience for the increasingly numerous visitors to the city. And the lithographs of Thomas were only one entry in a newly popular genre of contemporary Roman costume paintings. These orchestrated experiences of street life uh, functioned as a prologue to the overwhelming effects provided by the high moments of touristic experience in the city, like the ceremony of St. Peter's from this snapshot of the Pope at prayer to the wide prospect of the Pope's blessing, both of these coming from the album of Thomas, to this mass in the interior of the church by Angre, conveyed in a competently atmospheric and detailed watercolor. We have only to attend to Lawrence's own breathless descriptions of his life in the seat of Catholic Christendom to grasp the character of this voyeuristic cult among the English. Here is Lawrence describing an evening in a way that is difficult to condense, so I'll let his words take over for just a bit. I quote, I was yesterday at St. It, it, sorry, it was, yes, it was yesterday, St. Peter's Day. He wrote at the beginning of July to the, his artist confidant, Joseph Farrington. I was spectator of doubtless the most superb ceremony and spectacle that this world can exhibit, the celebration of high mass in St. Peter's. No words of mine have any power of conveying to you the magnificence and grandeur of it. By the care of the cardinal, of course he means Consalvi, and the persons having direction of the ceremony, I was placed nearer to the Pope than any other stranger, with the exception of the Duke of Saxagota and some other persons of rank, in the seat that ranges on the side and immediately behind the cardinals. So I had an entirely convenient view of the whole ceremony. 
Titian never conceived anything more gorgeous and at the same time solemn in dignity than the accompaniments and dresses of the personages in this scene. End quote for the moment. Because this was not the end of the day, as Lawrence returns to the great basilica, quote, at three o'clock, I dined with Lady Shaftesbury and in the evening called on the Duchess of Devonshire to go with her and her friends to Vespers at St. Peter's. We stayed going frequently round that noble area till the second illumination and then drove to the house immediately opposite to the bridge and castle of St. Angelo to see its display of fireworks from the room and balcony which had recently been occupied by their imperial majesties. He means the Austrian emperor and empress. The night before, I had seen the fireworks from the same place by Cardinal Consalvi's direction. When the whole was over, I went to the French ambassadors, Comte Blaca, which is always attended by the finest society, and about one o'clock returned to the Quirinal Palace." End quote. The Quirinal, lately the Roman headquarters of Napoleon, served as the papal residence, Pius VII being sovereign of the entire territory in this era and not just the Vatican. When Lawrence ended the evening at the palace, he was returning to the generous apartments supplied to him by Consalvi and the Pope, and it was there that he fashioned his assigned portraits of both. The artist's fascination with the spectacle of St. Peter's is writ large across his portrait of Consalvi. Conspicuously in his rendering of Bernini's facade in mixed shadow and sun, the flare of evening illumination like the fireworks seen from the Castel San Angelo opposite, the shadow serving to emphasize the force of the cardinal's brightly lit visage. Before Lawrence ultimately left Rome to return to London, the Duchess begged him for a pencil portrait of the cardinal's face, which she afterward carried with her everywhere she went. The warmth of the Consalvi portraits bespeaks Lawrence's own giddy insertion into a strangely crypto-Catholic way of life conducted by some of the highest English aristocracy. Also prominent among this set, as I mentioned earlier, was the Duchess's stepson, now the sixth Duke of Devonshire, making his residence in Rome and hesitating to marry. Their friend Consalvi's improvements and the round of spectacles he encouraged made Roman life congenial and continually diverting. Allowing for its very privileged character, this phenomenon might be taken as a sign of benign ecumenical progress. Old religious animosities softened by the displacements effected by the restoration. And that would be true to a point. But the cloud of apostasy also hung over this confessional rapprochement, darkened by the questions surrounding the Duchess's title. One of her daughters wrote to her from London in 1818, though it may worry you, I must tell you that all London is occupied with the strange story that you have written to the Prince Regent that the Duke is not the real heir, not the first Duchess's son, that being turned Catholic, you had confessed it to a priest." End quote. <laughs> So Lawrence's deeper task in these portraits was simultaneously to celebrate this Anglo-Vatican entente, the prince regent had insisted on this, while finding plausible ways to represent spiritual authority without giving himself over to it. In the same letter to Farrington of July 1819, Lawrence surveyed the chief precedents for his own papal portrait. 
His subject, he allows, had been very successfully painted by David and by Camuccini, the two first painters of Paris and Rome, I'm quoting. The latter is an able artist and from his character and manners deservedly esteemed. His portrait of the Pope generally pleased. It was exceedingly well drawn and with a forcible effect. But he did not encounter the difficulties of its subject. He chose, if I may say so, its too obvious and quiescent character. His view of the face was nearly a profile with eyes and head and frame bending down, an image of respectable decay." End quote. Camuccini is hardly known today, but was then deemed, as Lawrence implies, Rome's leading artist, and had duly painted this portrait of Pius VII in 1815 to mark the pontiff's return. Despite the politesse in Lawrence's phrasing, the final verdict is damning. Camuccini had failed to reconcile the Pope's slight stature and stooped posture with an authority that transcends physical limitations. In the hands of the Italian, those infirmities become no more than what one sees. Occasions for sympathy, perhaps, but not for the kind of admiring reverie that Lawrence had in mind for his own version. One meant to trump both his French and Italian rivals. I have painted him full in front, with all but the eyes immediately directed to you, with every detail of his countenance. And it is one of many minute parts. But these animated, with benevolence and a sort of mild energy, which is the real character of his intellect and nature. The securing of this with a good and true tone of color has given me undisputed victory and has still more established the superiority of our English school. On that same note of triumph, Lawrence wrote to a female acquaintance, we don't know who exactly, in June of 1819, quote, no picture that I have painted has been more popular with the friends of its subject and the public than my portrait of his holiness. And according to my scale of ability, I have executed my intention, having given him the expression of unaffected benevolence and worth which lights up his countenance with a freshness and spirit entirely free, except in the characteristic paleness of his complexion from that appearance of illness and decay that he generally has when enduring the fatigue of public functions." End quote. Again, there's that inevitable evocation of the pontiff's frail physique, which Lawrence claims to have overcome through sheer artistic alchemy perhaps aided by the unnaturally dark hair that Pius VII retained into old age. But he hasn't relied only on his way with the subject's face and hands to ensure the painting's success and to make certain that it carried the right sort of meanings back to his own sovereign. Lawrence had absorbed, whether he knew it or not, another piece of wisdom offered by Bernini on his travels to Paris to sculpt the portrait bust of the French king and to offer his designs for the renovation of the Louvre. His recorded remark subordinates the first of these tasks, the portrait sculpture, to the second, the design for the Louvre, under the common rubric of creating a likeness of the monarch. Bernini, with the same combination of seeming modesty and self-interest that we've noted before, stated that the sculpted portrait can be no more than an exterior likeness, but, quote, the grand schemes of the king are the portrait of his soul. In Lawrence's portrait of Consalvi, 
the refurbished St. Peter's served this function quite literally. And one sees on the table the thick bound plan published by the Cardinal in 1816, his motu proprio, devoted to legal and administrative reform of the papal states. Another of his great initiatives was the yet unfinished Braccio Nuovo in the Vatican Museum here as it exists today. And Lawrence took the liberty of placing the barrel vaulted space adjacent to the Pope's right hand where the return Laocoon and Belvedere Apollo appear beneath the dramatically shadowed ceiling. Lawrence had been knighted before setting off on his European journey. His sponsors thinking that the Sir before his name would smooth the way in dealing with his sitters and their courtiers. The English artist placed Canova's own warrant of nobility in the pontiff's grasp, the emblem of his friends successfully securing the return of these very capital treasures. The backlit Apollo appears to sit on top of the pope's hand like a genie. It's the same hand that bears the fisherman's ring, which is remade for every new pope. The dynamic rising curve of the serpents enveloping Lyakoan and Lyakoan's sons continues and dramatically extends and animates the trajectory which is established by the white sleeve and ermine trim on his cape. Lawrence's portrait of Pius VII made the most glamorous and charismatic objects of restoration into the Pope's own single attributes. Icons of power transfiguring the pontiff's famously uh, uh, frail physique, his mortal character. And it would also have reminded the soon-to-be George IV of the one piece of glory from the restoration of legitimate and monarchical Europe to which he had some public claim. It was, in fact, I'll confide, that when I first recognized this combined pictorial eloquence and understatement on Lawrence's part, that the seed of these lectures on the theme of restoration was really planted. The very fact of an Englishman painting a pope being one of the most striking symptoms of restoration displacements and crossed circuits. But that observation now strikes me after these four lectures as more of a premise than a conclusion. For all the goodwill engendered by Canova and Consalvi among the English, there remains something perilous in an English artist crossing over to an, an inherent celebration of the papacy as restorative, given the historic strength of post-Reformation religious animosities. The heresy suspicions that dogged the Duchess of Devonshire could spread and could indeed fall on the artist and the patron themselves. So how then did Lawrence go about investing Pius VII with a metaphysical authority commensurable with his rank, but independent of Catholic claims to God's own investiture in this individual human being? The key lay in that contrast between the Pope's slight frame and the magnitude of the antiquities, Apollo subduing Python, the heroic musculature of Lyakoan, uh, bested only by Poseidon's monsters and dramatized in this really terrific preparatory drawing by Lawrence. Their superhuman power made by the artist to grow from the exemplary weakness of Pius VII as a frail human being. The beams of sunlight that radiate down the length of the Braccio Nuovo, which is at that moment in an imaginary realm, have their implied point of origin somewhere near the heart of the pontiff. 
Sir Walter Scott, who had witnessed the removal of the antiquities from Paris, remarked that, I quote, French attachment to these paintings and statues, or rather to the national glory which they conceive them to illustrate, is as excessive as if the Apollo and the Venus were still objects of actual adoration, end quote. Lawrence shifts the location of metaphysical, not to say spiritual meaning of his painting, away from the person investments of the Pope to this intermediate zone between exemplary human weakness and radiant mythological strength. By virtue of its restoration, the ancient statuary recovers, as Scott implied, something of its original powers bestowing pagan magic on their Christian possessor, who has summoned them back to Rome by deploying sources of strength that are nowhere evident in his mortal person. Lawrence thereby finds a figure for the ambiguity of confessional identity that characterized his Roman milieu as well as for the great coincidence in Rome of an imposing classical inheritance on one side and monumental religious sovereignty on the other, made harmonious by church fiat, but always in an unstable tension with one another. As such, the portrait of Pius VII in concert with his instrument Consalvi achieves a compact and cogent mastery of its own over the restoration's daunting complexities. The next lecture will culminate with another canvas of 1819, about which a similar claim might be made. Jacques-Louis David's dramatically different, thoroughly pagan anger of Achilles. So I hope I'll be able to see you to talk about that next Sunday. Many thanks. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.